Grace, mercy, and the peace of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be and abide with each of us this day and forever. Amen. Today is Trinity Sunday on the church calendar. The Sunday after Pentecost, Pentecost was last week, and so um, the altar was read and we celebrated the gift and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and so this week, being the week after Pentecost, we remember and we recognize and we celebrate the identity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a traditional date in the church calendar and helpful for us to recognize in that God's identity, God's person, God's nature, who God is. This is the thing, though. There are things about God we don't know. God is beyond our comprehension. We can't understand God, even though we desire to him, to understand him. We desire to know God, and people have been trying to understand and trying to know God, well, as long as there have been people, right? And so for those who don't know and don't understand God, there's some filling in the blanks that happens. There's a natural knowledge of God, so we know in our hearts, we know in our minds, we know in our souls that there's something beyond, right? Which is why there's religion in the world. And there's various religions across time and across various cultures and around the world. Archaeologists can dig and find evidence of religion, of a recognition of the divine and that's then explained in different ways. A lot of times there's more than one God in view. There's a variety of gods. A pantheon is the word that we use for that. Because we don't quite understand how it all works, right? We don't quite understand how God can do the things that he does. And so many times multiple gods are in view. See, we try to understand God's nature and his purpose and his identity and his plans. I've said this before. I don't want a God I can understand, though. I mean, think about it. If you can understand God, how big is God? <laughs> if you can fit God into a box that your mind can contain, is your God infinite? As a family, we've been watching Marvel movies over the last few weeks. Marvel comics with superheroes and these battles in most of these films. And one of the ones that we watched recently was Avengers. You don't have to understand Marvel or even the characters or the plot of the movie to follow this, though. So um, there's the bad guy, and there's kind of typically a bad guy. And that's Loki in this film, in the Avengers. And at one point, Loki comes from somewhere else, kind of out in space. There's a portal that gets opened, and they're coming, Loki and all these other kind of minions, right? They're going to take over the world. And the Avengers, the superheroes, then intervene with a Hulk. And most of us probably remember the Hulk. 
I remember the Hulk from when I was watching the show that was on in the 1970s. Hulk who turns green and gets enormous, right? So the Hulk attacks Loki and Loki says, well, you can't, you can't hurt me, I, I'm a god. Well, the Hulk grabs Loki by the leg and pounds him back and forth on the floor and leaves him in a pile and walks away and his words are, puny god. <laughs> puny God. If you can handle God, he's a puny God. If you can understand God, he's a puny God. We need to recognize our limits. God's beyond our comprehension, and that's because he's revealed things to us, but not everything. There's too much. Romans chapter 11, the apostle Paul writes these words in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God can't be understood. He's beyond our comprehension. He's not revealed everything to us. And even if he did, we couldn't understand because our minds are finite. Psalm 39, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That might be Psalm 139. Sorry. I think my notes might be wrong here. But such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Beyond comprehension, there's a limit to what we could understand, even if God were to reveal everything to us. So Trinity Sunday, one God, three persons, is incomprehensible. It's something we cannot grasp, we cannot understand. In fact, the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. It was a word that was coined, made up, created to help us understand this whole concept. It's a doctrine that we use to describe God in his nature being one God in three persons. It uses biblical concepts Because God is three persons. We see that in Scripture, yet one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is one God. Not many gods, not a pantheon of gods, but one God. But in that... God or Godhead, sometimes it's called, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, in the words of the Great Commission, Jesus sends his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we go and we baptize and we teach in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are other places in Scripture where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are simultaneously present. Jesus' baptism is coming up out of the water and the heavens open and the voice is there, Father. And the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends on Jesus. So Father, Son, and Spirit are all visible. There are other places where maybe it's just 
Jesus speaking about the Spirit, that he would come, that he would be sent. Or Jesus speaking about his Father, that he needed to be in his Father's presence, or the Father who sent him. So the Father and the Son, the Spirit and the Son, even the Father and the Spirit are all connected, not always mentioned together. But there's no fourth. There's no fourth person of the Trinity. There's nothing else that's equated to the level of Father, Son, and Spirit. Even if it's just two in view, it's not Father and something else. Always subordinate the angels, people, prophets, humanity, creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a a unique identity as God. Oftentimes on on Trinity Sunday, the Athanasian Creed is used as the confession of faith. It's a great, um, it's one of the ecumenical creeds, which means one of the creeds of the church, useful for the whole church, and it's a great exposition of the Christian faith. So I thought I would share it this morning. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of phrases in it that can be a little difficult to follow. So I'm going to try, hopefully, to read it in a way that helps us make sense. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. The word that's Catholic there is universal, not Roman Catholic. They adopted that word to say that that's the universal faith. But here it means the universal faith, the Christian faith. So we must hold the true Christian faith. Whoever does not keep the whole, keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And the faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person. The Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Creed goes on to unpack what that means. What does it mean that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are, are the same? goes on. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But there are not three gods, there are, there is one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. There are not three lords, but one Lord. 
just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also are we prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is not made nor created nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. Those words begotten and proceeding are just our, our best attempt at understanding the inner workings, the relationship within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that the Father somehow has a, a superiority or a hierarchy that the Son begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeding from both Father and Son. It's just our best way of understanding. It's complicated. It's mysterious. This is why it's incomprehensible. Thus there are, is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits, and in this Trinity none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal so that in all things, as been stated above, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. The creed goes on to talk about the identity and the, particularly of Jesus, particularly of the second person of the Trinity, talking about who he is and what he does. That's, that's the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius was a champion of Trinitarian theology. He attended the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325. And he's credited or named as the originator of the Athanasian Creed, but it's unlikely that he wrote it or wrote the whole thing. Maybe some of it was words that he had coined or phrases that he used, but it's believed that the Athanasian Creed actually kind of developed over the next couple hundred years after his death and originated in Gaul, which is now France, probably in about the 5th century. He fought against heresies, particularly Arianism, but others. And his epitaph reads, Athanasius against the world. It's important for us to have a basis for our faith, for what we believe, and so we confess, I believe in God the Father. We confess that with the Apostles' Creed, with the Nicene Creed, and though we don't use those words in the Athanasian Creed, it is a confession of belief in God the Father, that God created everything and provides all that we need. He provides for us by his grace. The small catechism, Luther said, that he supplies everything that we need or all that we need to support this body and life that he gives to us all that we have, all that we see, all that we recognize. And he provides for all, believers and unbelievers. God doesn't distinguish in his provision. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. 
He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All of creation is sustained by the grace of God, whether we are his followers or not. That's God's grace. And God's creation was perfect before the fall into sin. When God created in Genesis 1 and 2, and we've talked about this a lot of times, Genesis 1 and 2 describe creation, how God spoke and things came to be. And there was an intimate way that God created man and woman, and that's really captured in chapter 2 of Genesis, that the garden was made for people to dwell in. And then in that garden, there was perfection. There was a relationship, an open and, and friendly walking together, talking to one another in the cool of the evening, spending time with God in the garden. And everything was, was just right, was good, was very good. And the relationship that man had with woman and with creation, that the, the first humans had a perfect relationship and, and related to animals and plants and all of creation in a way that we don't get to. And probably we can't even imagine but in Genesis chapter 3, those first humans were disobedient. And we've talked about that a lot as well. That there was a fall into sin. And Romans 5 says this. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. So we needed... A savior. I believe in God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten of the same substance with the Father. God, eternal, infinite, uncreated, all-powerful, became man, took on humanity. Philippians chapter 2 describes it as taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. The incarnation is described but still is mysterious to us. This infinite God that we believe in was found in the finite person of Jesus. He became a person. To rescue us, and Jesus is our Redeemer. The one who gave his life on the cross to save us with his holy, precious blood, as 1 Peter chapter 1 described, his innocent suffering and death. Luther picks up those words in the small catechism. That he died on the cross on our behalf, that's beyond our comprehension and our understanding. That God would lay down his life on behalf of sinful subjects. But that's what we believe. That's what the Bible describes, that Jesus died for you, for me, for the sin of the world. But he rose again. He rose again from the grave, giving us the assurance of everlasting life, breaking the, the seal 
opening the grave so that our graves would not be the end. So that our graves are only temporary places for us because we look forward to what is yet to come. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And we talked about that just a couple of weeks ago, the ascension, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That position of an advocate, of an intercessor, co-equal with his Father, yet still God and man. And he is coming again to judge the world. He didn't leave to stay away. He will come again. And in that day, the great resurrection, when all who have died are raised, and those who are in faith go to an eternal presence of God experience, much like the garden, when everything is put back the way it belongs, and we are with the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about what the resurrection looks like. A glorious day. While we wait, though Jesus didn't leave us alone, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives faith. Last week, as we talked about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, we, we talked about these ideas, about what the Spirit does, about how the Spirit brings us to faith. If you missed that message, let me commend to you going back on the website and looking for sermons and navigating to May 23rd, last week, when we talked about what the Spirit does. He makes us holy through faith. He gives us strength for living. He comforts us when we are in need. He speaks to us, and he brings our prayers before God this is what the Spirit does. We have received the Spirit of God. Through the Word of God, preached, proclaimed, spoken, sung, understood, or not, we've come to a place of faith by the work of the Spirit within us. Now the Spirit enables us, empowers us to follow God. See, we obey what God commands by the Spirit's power. The Great Commission Go and teaching, make disciples, baptizing, and teaching them to obey. That obedience not, doesn't come from our power, our strength, our desire, but it comes from the Spirit at work within us. The Spirit keeps us connected to God. And the Spirit enables the church to fulfill that great commission so that we go, so that we can make disciples, so that we bring people to the waters of baptism so that we teach people what it is to understand God to the limits of our ability so that we connect people to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we proclaim the name of God together as the church, sharing the faith of the universal <laughs> church, in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.